3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. <laughs> Here on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Sorry, Carly, I just jumped in ahead of you. As always, Priya, um, it is the 15th of April and the clock has just ticked over to 7.01. Well, good morning, Carly. Good morning, Rosie. Um, so... Yeah, today it is the 15th of April, and um, as people may know, as people should know, this is the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Custody, uh, Aboriginal Deaths and Custodies report being handed down. Um, as people might be aware of, there was a National Day of Action last week, and there'll be a little bit of discussion about that um, in this week's show. And um, yeah, we just really encourage people to keep on top of news about that and to support families in their in their fight for justice um, for their loved ones that they've lost uh, to deaths in custody. And we'll provide more information about how you can do that throughout the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, our hearts and thoughts are really with the families who have lost loved ones in custody today. Absolutely. Yeah, and, um, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, following along with this on social media... Um, you know, amplify uh, articles, amplify stories, amplify the petition that families are circulating, which you can find at natsels.org.au slash BLM. Uh, amplify the demands of the families, which we will be playing in this show right out by April Day at uh, last week's um, at last week's rally. And um, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, talk to your friends. Don't uh, don't let this pass by unnoticed. This is a really, really important anniversary. Mm. And um, what else do we have on the show today, Priya? Yeah, so um, maybe, do you want to start off, Carly? Yes. So um, this morning we're going to hear Mariki Onus, host of The Black Block, speaking to Wurundjeri woman Sue Ann Hunter about the Uruk Justice Commission, a truth-telling process that's expected to begin in July 2021. And I listened to this episode, fantastic episode, so definitely go and check it out. Um, and you can, um, yeah, go to 3cr.org.au slash the black block to find the 12th of April 2021 episode. So that's the episode that played just this Monday gone. And then we're going to get June Rima on the line. And June Rima is the deputy CEO of the First People's Disability Network. And she joins us to speak about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, and we'll primarily be discussing mandatory independent assessments and the current experiences that First Nations people have when accessing NDIS. And after that, um, we're going to be playing some excerpts from a conversation that I had with Amanda, who's an activist scholar of Aboriginal Brinja Yuan and settler Greek English descent, who provided some reflections on the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And Amanda's work is really focused on, um, you know, pushing back against uh, 
colonial carceral systems, um, prisons and policing and racialized policing of Aboriginal people. And I really, you know, encourage people to listen closely to what uh, she has to say 30 years on from from the handing down of that report. And after that, um, we will be playing that clip uh, of April Day reading uh, the demands of families, the 15, I think, demands from families who have lost loved ones in custody that she read out at the NARM rally to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody this past Saturday. And finally, we'll be speaking with Steph Janides, who is a, a Harm Reduction Victoria's DanceWise Program Director and pro- Board Member of Harm Reduction Australia, which runs Pill Testing Australia. And Steph is going to join us to discuss the state of support availability for people who use drugs and or alcohol and how this has changed since the COVID-19 pandemic has hit. And also we're going to talk about some findings from the recent coronial inquest into the deaths of five young men between July 2016 and January 2017 um, after they ingested what they believed to be MDMA and or magic mushrooms, but uh, which was mixed with a much more potent substance that, that tragically led to their deaths. Um, and uh, now we're going to go to the news headlines. All right. So <clears throat> news headlines for the 15th of April. A third actor on the long-running show Neighbours has spoken out about racism on set. Sharon Jahal said that she experienced direct, indirect and casual racism in her four years on the set. Maine White, a Wangatha Yamachi man, and Sharina Clanton, a Wangatha Yamachi Noongar Gitche woman, have also turned to social media in recent weeks to detail incidents of racism on the set of Neighbours. In a social media post, Sharina Clanton said, Overt and covert levels of racism were rife. During months of her working on Neighbours. Sharon Joel stated that, on more than one occasion, a current cast member, not a person of colour, directly referred to her as you people when speaking in derogatory terms about an altercation they were involved in with an Indian person. Jahal also said that when she raised this comment with management, they spoke to the cast member, but no action was taken. Wyatt and Clanton, in regards to their complaints of racism, have also shared similar apathetical responses from Neighbours Management. Australian Federal Police, AFP, have confirmed during a Senate inquiry that a fresh investigation has been launched into allegations linked to Victoria Cross recipient Ben Robert Smith. A Nine Network report claims that Robert Smith buried a USB drive of compromising material relating to his time in Afghanistan. The Nine report also alleges that Robert Smith sent emails and letters intimidating people he believed would give evidence against him to war crime investigators. The AFP Deputy Commissioner, Ian McCartney, stated, Some of the allegations that have been raised are serious and it's being treated as a priority by the Australian Federal Police. And lastly, today marks the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which handed down its final report on April 15, 1991. The report made 339 recommendations, but to this day, few have been implemented. Whilst there are 474 reported black deaths in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission, 3CR Thursday Breakfast would like to acknowledge the thousands of unreported black deaths because of the prison system. Prisons are used by the state as places for drug detoxing, housing and chronic mental health rehabilitation, and many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have had their lives cut short because of the prison system. Today, 
3CR Thursday Breakfast is thinking of all of the First Nations families whose loved ones have died in custody at the hands of the state. If you want to um, you know, find out more about the demands from families, about the concerns from families, and also about the stories of people who have died in custody and to honour their memories, um, please go to natsels.org.au slash BLM where you can find a little bit about um, both what families of people who have died in custody are demanding, uh, which includes a meeting with Prime Minister Scott Morrison, and you can also read a little bit about you know the, the lives of these wonderful people who have been you know have had their lives cut short by the system um, it is absolutely appalling and I also just wanted to comment on on that AFP um, investigation into uh, Ben Robert Smith um, we recommend as well listening back to the diaspora blues episode on the 5th of April where um, Ayan spoke with Babak Saeed, who is uh, a queer Afghan writer, um, a member of the diaspora, and who was speaking a bit about, you know, these uh, alleged war, war crimes um, from the perspective of, of a member of the diaspora. So we really recommend um, having a listen to that uh, because, you know, these are the perspectives that really don't get amplified in mainstream media. And uh, we spoke with uh, Babak you know, a couple of months back as well. And, Arab people are basically objectified um, and not provided voice in these discussions. Um, yeah. Yeah, so true, Priya. And when they do speak, like Babak had that big backlash against their um, mm. essay that they wrote about the Brereton Report. So really good to go back to that essay and uh, definitely have a listen to that Diaspora Blues episode. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. And now we're going to hear Mariki Onus, host of The Black Box, speaking to Wurundjeri woman Sue Ann Hunter about the Uruk Justice Commission, a truth-telling process expected to begin in July 2021. This episode aired on The Black Block on the 12th of April 2021. Now I have uh, Wurundjeri woman um, and uh, a good friend of mine, Sue Ann Hunter. Sue Ann uh, actually, she is uh, applying to become a commissioner on the um, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Royal Commission um, that, uh, that's being led by the Victorian Treaty. Welcome to my show, Sue Ann. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mariki. How are you going after the weekend? Oh, it's pretty heavy, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think we all um, have our time to stop and, and reflect, and I think 
Saturday night I was able to do that. And then, you know, I'm pretty lucky in that I'm with my family and we practice culture, so the jury jury. And so we danced and sang yesterday, which sort of helps helps with the healing and helps bring you back and leaves you with this sense of pride and strength. So I'm lucky that I have that, yeah. Yeah, and you actually spoke at the march and you did the... Was it a not welcome or a welcome? I actually was a bit late to the march, so do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about what your how you how you not welcome or welcome people when you get up and speak at the march? Yeah, so I guess at the march for justice, I didn't welcome people because we were excluded. But um, I guess with um, the rally for the uh, you know and and really. Um, respect to the families. Um, I just welcomed everybody there that was there to be able to walk alongside the families and fight for justice with the families. Um, I was going to speak in language, but instead I only used the word woman jekka, which most people refer to as welcome. But it actually, when you break it down, it means to come with purpose, which was really fitting for the day. So people came to the rally or the march with a purpose. Um, and I, I, I thought that was uh, that was really um, fitting for the day, um, and, and I hope it started to set the tone. It is a different vibe when it's a march for black followers by black followers, isn't it? Um, in comparison to how oh. we were received around International Women's Day, it's chalk and cheese, isn't it? Do you want to make some comment about yeah. that? Yeah, I will. Look, I, I guess we were excluded and you know that firsthand when you have that experience um and then i'm not sure how it ended up with me at the march for justice and i just thought you know our voices need to be heard and we need to and people need to be told that they need to be heard we need to you know be part of a journey that we've been fighting for for years on our own you know and if you're going to come along and do that include us and you know i think we're we're pretty good mob we include a lot of people so um i think at that march for justice really getting our voice around how we've been uh fighting around gendered violence you know since since colonization since you know they stepped foot on here um and our women help every other woman and and woman and take them along on that journey with us and I, i just feel sometimes people forget that um and i just wanted to remind them yeah, you did a fantastic speech at um, the March for Justice. It wasn't the International Women's Day March. It was the the march in response to what's happening in to, in Canberra um, yeah. around the 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 male violence towards women in Parliament yeah. House. And that yeah. was a fantastic I think, speech. I want to find that speech oh, and play it actually. Thank you. Um, it was. I did get it published by Women's Agenda. Um, they asked they could publish it, which was you no. Know, Lovely, but um, you know when we come to these um, speeches and marches and talking, and you know we're not saying anything new. We're just bringing the voice of all our people. And within those speeches that I have, it's not just my voice. It's you know, Mariki, I speak to you. It's your voice. It's um, you know, April's voice, and just escalating a voice of all of our women and um, I don't do it alone, although people go, oh, you do a great job. It's not just me, it's all of us that we fight together and that's the way we work as a community. Um, and, and if I'm in that 
space and able to bring that voice through, I will. Yeah, that's it. That's how I feel. You know, we don't act alone and it's not in a vacuum. We kind of all lean on each other and we also stand on the shoulders of the giants that come before us. Yeah. Um, so I just also just wanted to send an extended thank you to you and the Wurundjeri mob and your family for, you know, um, supporting the fight and the work that we do here too. And I'm sure yeah. it's not always been easy to watch, you know, everyone come to your country and fight for justice um, when, you know, this is in fact your country. Um, and I'm sure it often gets forgotten by people. And um, so it's a reminder to everyone that we do live on stolen land. Mm. While, while I'm on that subject, I think that's a really good segue to ask you about um, the Victorian Treaty and um, your you, you've applied to become a commissioner. Do you want to yeah. um, talk to us a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, so the York Commission is around seeking truth and justice um, for our people in Victoria. Um, you know, it, it was I was weighing up if to or if not to um, to apply um, as one of the five commissioners, um, and it's a three-year uh, commission. Um, it actually uh, it stands alone, so it'll be sort of going whilst treaty is still going. So they'll sort of work side by side a bit, although the commission is quite independent um, because it needs to be. It needs to be um, an independent uh, set up so that there's no influence or, impact, you know, people um, being able to have influence on that commission. So it will stand alone. And although it's funded by government, it's, it's not influenced by government either. So I think... It's time, and I know that sounds very like someone in politics, but I'm not a politician. <laughs> so let's just make that clear. <laughs> um, and one of the things for me is my fight over the last 20 years, or my, I, you know, it is our work, but it's our life's work, and that's the difference of being difference of being a community member, is that I've worked on the front lines with our children and families, um, and I've seen the pain and suffering that comes alongside that. I've also been in a position where I've been able to help and other positions where I've been and felt helpless and useless. Um, so I, I, can, I know what happens on, on the front line. Um, we want truth-telling so our children don't have to carry the weight of the past into the future. And so what we also need is the truth-telling for our elders that um, may be a controversial one, but when they go to their dreaming, they're able to rest easy. So their story's told, heard, and there's justice. Um, and I want to be part of being able to hold people in the space of really listening to what their stories are. I mean, how many times have we spoken about our stories not being heard or not being believed? Um, and this is time that that can happen. So my background, if you like, is around... Um, you know, trained social worker, as we, um, and, you know, I don't like to say that because um, that's really a white sort of way of saying it, but I am. I'm trained in social work. I'm a therapist. I've held people in their pain lots and lots of times and people reach out to me and I thought, if we're going to be doing truth-telling and storytelling about our past, I want to be part of making sure we're not re-traumatising 
and I also want to be part of making sure just, there's justice for our people. Yeah, um, that sounds amazing. Um, it's it's really the first of its kind in this country, isn't it? I mean, look, yeah. I don't want to insult anyone that's probably done work in this space, and I know that there's a lot of scol- there's a lot of work out there that's been done on um, you know the impact of invasion and the ongoing impacts of now settler colonialism that we experience even today as Aboriginal people. Yeah. I'm really interested and. Um, I don't know. I feel quite emotional, I, and and I don't know why I feel this way. I will. I mean, it's bleedingly obvious why I feel this way. But it yeah. is. Um, you know, I have not been the a complete supporter of the Victorian Treaty, but I am really interested to see what comes out of this um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I want to also know, and maybe <clears throat> I don't know if you could speculate on this, or even if you know. Why did they choose truth and reconciliation and not truth and justice? Because um, a lot of our mob have called for truth and justice and internationally truth and justice is more well known. Is it that in Canada that they've have, they've have truth and reconciliation and in South Africa they have truth and justice? I don't know. I'm just speculating on that, yeah. but I'd be keen to find out the point of difference. I'm happy to find out that point of difference. So yeah. I'm still researching and looking and what does this all mean and how do we... Because, you know, those intricacies, like questions like that, um, are things I wrote I don't really know yet and I'm really researching about what this means mm. um, because I want to understand how this commission can be set up to seek justice. Um, and I think it all needs to be included, but is that a big ask? I don't, I yeah. don't actually know. Yeah. One of the things that I have read is that they will include the um, death in custody um, report as well as the bringing them home report will be part of that. Um, and if we set the treaty system and framework up right, it should be able to make sure that this commission isn't another one where the recommendations sit on the shelf. Well, there's, um, yeah. I mean, there's hope that the... the um, the Treaty Commission will implement the recommendations rather than it being left up to um, successive failed governments. Exactly, and that's mm. the part that gives me a lot of hope and probably really pushed me over the line to apply um, because I, I was like, oh, is this going to be another one that sits on the shelf? And the more I read, the more... Um, I'm understanding and the more I really want to be invested in getting, um, you know, the right people at the table, making sure people feel heard, making sure people are safe to come because we can't do it unless people come forward um, with their stories and how we do that needs to be in our way, in a safe way, in a cultural way. Um, Um, And I I want to be part of that. Yeah, I think... I'm, there's kind of two things that come to mind for me for this. I think, um, I hope that other systems are looked at within the scope, you know, even the health and education systems have presented as forms of colonial violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples still to this day in a more sophisticated form. And I think, I hope that the truth is told around those systems as well. Um, and also in, um, I'm doing a course at the moment, um, at Melbourne Uni and, um, some of my 
class um, mates are from New Zealand, Aotearoa, and they're Maori mob, and they're doing projects on um, family and clan and tribal um, archives where they all have days where they get together and bring all of their pieces of information that they've all held on to and they put yeah. all the puzzles together as a family clan and, and tribes and then they have this archive that's completely owned by them and managed by them where they have their stories and they have their connections and they've put all their family trees together and they've um and they can hold that in a place not just be um and 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 to change it from oral history to something that we can record and keep for ourselves rather than it being in stuck in white institutions that we can't access yeah. so that will be yeah. really cool to see if that comes out of um anyway just pushing my ass yeah. on to the uh, hopeful hopefully yeah. new commissioner <laughs> well um look you know the, the thing is I, I was shortlisted and i was you know uh, oh you were oh, hang on a yeah. minute that's a revelation when did you find yeah. that out over the weekend congratulations um, i hope you um get it so the shortlist will be published with public statements tomorrow um, and just so you understand, um, it's inquiring and reporting on historical system, systemic injustices perpetrated against First People since colonisation, so massacres, wars, genocide, as well as the ongoing systemic injustices, so policing, child protection, education, welfare, health, invasion of privacy, exclusion from economic, social and political life. So it's huge. Wow. Are that, hang on, is that the scope? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. So it's quite large, um, but I think you're right. It needs to be. It needs to look at the whole system. It, you know, it's going to be bloody hard. Oh, it's yeah. going to be hard for us um, as First Nations people. It's also going to be hard for non-Indigenous people to hear. But, you know... Um, it needs to be told, and, and these are the this is what needs to go into our education system, and it needs to start early. So, um, yeah, so there'll also be, so the Commission will be able to make broad recommendations about um, reforms and actions needed. Um, it'll include cultural, cultural restoration uh, and healing, public awareness, education, law and institutional reform and subject matters that should be included in treaties. Interesting. Um, um, yeah, so it's, it's broad, right? So where can we find more information on this if we're interested in reading a bit more? So if you... Google's an amazing thing. <laughs> so if you... So it's on the First People's Assembly of Victoria. Under that, there is a Yuruk, which is Y-O-O-R-R-O-K, Justice Commission. And that's a, a, a wamba wamba language word which um, means truth. Yes. Um, so if you put in your book, um, Justice Commission, you'll be able to come up with interviews that have been had, people um, on the Treaty Assembly talking about it, as well as the scope um, and proposed functions and things like that. And just then, we heard Mariki Onus, host of The Black Block, speaking to Wurundjeri woman Sue Ann Hunter about the Yurok Justice Commission, a truth-telling process that's expected to begin in July 2021. That episode aired on The Black Block on the 12th of April 2021, and you can find the whole episode online at www.3cr.org.au slash theblackblock. 
and the Black Block is an Indigenous current affairs program that is broadcast on 3CR every Monday from 11am to 1pm. And now we're going to head into a new track. This one is by Pookie. It's Mad, um, it's the title of the track, <laughs> and it's off her new album, Dinka Girl. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know an emu and a kangaroo can never move backwards? That is precisely the reason why they chose to use these two animals on the Australian coat of arms. To symbolise a nation moving forward, never backwards. So, um, why the hell did we let Paul and Hanson back in Parliament? We have heard this woman attacking every single minority group, starting with the Indigenous Australians. She went on to attack the Islamic community, talking about ban the burqa, ban halal products. Okay, Pauline, I know why you want to ban halal products. You're like 90% pork. She went on to attack the Asians, and that's when I started thinking, I better make myself more Aussie. So I went out and got myself a house of the pool. And now to fit in, all I gotta do is learn how to swim. I've been emo. Sweeter than a Canadian, I am. The sweeter 
And that track there was Mad by Pookie off her new album, Dinker Girl. And now on the line, we're joined by June Reema, Deputy CEO of the First People's Disability Network. June Reema joins us to speak about the proposed changes to the National Disability Insurance Scheme and will primarily be discussing mandatory independent assessments and the current experiences that First Nations people have when accessing NDIS. Welcome, June. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Good morning and um, happy morning to everyone on this lovely Thursday. (laughs) So um, there's been a lot of news surrounding proposed changes to NDIS and um, one of the key proposed changes is mandatory independent assessments, which will be used to determine someone's eligibility for NDIS. So can you explain the current process that people have to go through to receive NDIS and then also talk about, if mandated, what independent assessments will mean? So currently with the system, um, first of all, we've had um, slow roll-up with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability understanding the system in general. But what normally happens, somebody um, refers or they can self-refer to the agency and, and they will get an appointment and they can ask for an Aboriginal community connector or local area coordinator to support them um, when the, the current um, interview person comes out and, and talks about what their needs may be. And, and there are an array of resources that have been developed, um, particularly by FPDN, in um, supporting people to understand what that journey means in around having choice and control in their life and understanding what supports they can get. So generally, it has been a soft journey for some people, but um, overall, what we've mostly seen, people, you know, do have problems accessing the service, particularly in rural and remote regions because they don't understand the navigation of having, um, you know, the appropriate information ready um, to supply to the assessors at that time. And, and the agency, there hasn't been a lot of flexibility around, you know, having those conversations with people and supporting to pe- people to have that ready-made plan in um, asking for, you know, what their needs may be around, you know, having in-home support or, you know, utilising equipment or accessing, you know, other support in their general community to, you know, give them a better and fulfilling life. Mm. So, you know, what we we fear now with this independent assessment, we've already got issues, people accessing the scheme. We we just fear there'll be more, you know, aggravated disadvantage because of the intersection of Aboriginality. And, you know, we haven't been assured that these independent assessors will be, you know, Aboriginal or understand culture or understand, you know, for our mob living on country, what that means for them. The, the other issue, we, you know, we feel the, the, the community will feel like they're under greatest surveillance and, and we worry that, you know, more children may be removed because of the lack of um, NDIS support if that independent assessment assumes that they don't need supports in their life. And the two issues that have come up lately is around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and um, acquired brain injury not being under the, you know, the NDIS. These are, you know, two big um, issues that happen across all communities, not just Aboriginal communities, and, and need a lot of support, you know, to 
help these individuals navigate, you know, services and 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 have a reasonable standard of life, you know, to support their mentoring, you know, education or employment. Mm. So we have real fears around these independent assessments that, you know, there's been a lack of safety in the process or, you know, how they would deliver to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. And um, just for listeners, the Morrison government has actually been accused of tampering with an independent NDIS uh, report uh, because documents released to Labor under Freedom of Information showed that a 2019 review of the NDIS was amended by public servants to include the section advocating for the rollout of permanent independent assessments for participants. So uh, really, I don't know if that was an independent NDIS assessment at all. Correct, yeah. And, I mean, you know, what we've lost here is about, you know, allowing people, you know, with disability, you know, and particularly with our, our mobile, you know, we're not talking about large numbers, you know, we're only 3% of the population. So if we want to change the life course for, you know, particularly young children with disability, not ending up, you know, with a lack of education or a lack of appropriate housing, you know, we need this social model of care. You know, that was the, at the beginning, the NDIS was about, you know, supporting people with disability to have the best life they can. It wasn't about cost cutting, mm. you know, because in the end, you know, we're marginalised and disadvantaged um, those, you know, that need this most. And generally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability are the most disadvantaged Australians. So, you know, to cost-cut support to, you know, vulnerable people that, you know, for a lot of our mob are living in poverty because, you know, the family can't support their individual needs around that disability. So, you know, I mean, we need to ask ourselves as a civil society, you know, if we don't help our most vulnerable, if we're cost-cutting, you know, at the edge where people really need, you know, our social support, you know, what sort of society and what sort of government are we? Mm, yeah, we'll speak a bit more about cost-cutting soon because I think that is one of the reasons why the government is saying that they are bringing in these independent assessments. Um, it's because currently my understanding of the NDIS is that people can go to their own specialists and then those specialists um, that they already have um, people um, who have disabilities, who have those specialists, can um, then get those specialists to write reports um, and then apply for NDIS. Um, but now with the independent assessments um, potentially rolling out, it means that these people, um, these specialists that don't already have a relationship with people who have disabilities are then going to come into their lives and then um, speak to them. I think I've seen the news say for about three hours and then determine if somebody um, has uh, is eligible for NDIS. Um, and, yeah, that's just a way that the government sees as cost-cutting. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you know, really, you know, that you really think that people or families with disability, you know, want to lie about, you know, what their needs are. These are you know, these are people that just want support like everyone else to access, you know, community and, and programs or employment like everyone else. You know, it's not about being greedy. They just want the things that enable them to, you know, have a better standard of living. Mm. So when we're asking for a stranger, an independent assessor that doesn't know this person, doesn't know their day-to-day needs 
And as we know, for a lot of people with disability, you know, you have your good days and your bad days. So if this independent assessor comes in on a good day and they think, well, you don't need this or you don't need that, you know, ultimately, you know, they're going to end up with lesser support and, and which then creates more issues for, you know, the families and how they can pick up, you know, supporting that individual because now they can't get any service support, you know, in a system that was built for people with disabilities. Mm. So, you know, we have real concerns and, and, you know, these barriers just keep piling up, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You know, um, we already, you know, have fear of government. We have fear of processes. We have fear of services not being culturally appropriate. Now, you know, we have a stranger coming into our home that says, you know, for a three-hour period that don't really know you, you know, don't know how you live day to day and assess, you know, whether you can have a quality of life or not. I mean, I just find it, you know, appalling that we're cost-cutting, you know, as I said earlier, for the most vulnerable, mm. you know. And, the, and these people, you know, generally it's been found they don't have large wants. It's just mm. general stuff, to, you know, to enable them to get out of bed every day, to, you know, to access, you know, employment or education or training or just to, you know, get out and about and, and have a better health and well-being. Mm, absolutely. And um, according to the Saturday paper, leaked documents reveal that the NDIS has set up a sustainability action task force, and that task force has been created to limit both the number of new applicants joining NDIS and the growth of spending on current participants. Um, and, yeah, there's just this whole idea of compliance now, and um, I've been reading news articles, and there's, um, you know, links to the logics of robo-debt, where now potentially the NDIS will be trying to regain money off participants when, you know, the NDIS messes up and, um, you know, potentially gives money to people, and people, they say, will be misusing it. And, um, yeah, what are your comments on that? Yeah, this doesn't happen. People don't mis- misuse. You know, it's very rare, you know. If people are getting, you know... Um, I mean, first of all, it's approved before they get a funding package. Mm. And then it's reviewed yearly about, you know, um, whether that package needs to be increased or maybe, you know, you, your lifestyle or your access is improved so you don't need, say, hypothetically, more transport in your package. So, you know, I mean, this is just again, you know, cost-cutting to a group of people that, you know, can't speak for themselves most of the time, can't, you know, don't have enough advocacy to support them in their life. And in regards to this task force, you know, our ask is how many First Nations people were asked to be part of this? Were people with disability a part of this task force? You know, who are this task force? Are these the non, you know... Aboriginal or non-people living with a disability that don't really understand the day-to-day struggles for, you know, those individuals. So, you know, we ask, what is the task force? How can you, you know, I don't speak on behalf of you and you don't speak on behalf of me. So why would, you know, people that really don't understand disability speak on behalf, you know, particularly for First Nations people and those living with a disability? You know, we, we urgently ask that, you know, this, 
the, the agency set up an advisory structure of those people with disability to support them in, you know, uh, any processes that, you know, they um, want to instigate to make it, you know, fairer for all, you know. You, you can't just take away something that was developed to, you know, as I said earlier, to support the most, you know, disadvantaged and vulnerable mm. in our community. Yeah. And, I mean, since NDIS's inception, um, there has been just such systemic flaws, um, such as people in prison not being able to access NDIS and funding not being available to pay for rent or food. So what are some of the ongoing concerns that you see Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples face when trying to access NDIS support or any um, disability support in general? Well, I think the biggest issue has always been for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that lack of, you know, cultural knowledge, um, the lack of, you know, um, understanding men's and women's business, particularly in, you know, some of our um, more central, rural and remote regions, you know, and, you know, asking for, you know, a, a male person to assess, you know, a female, which is culturally very inappropriate. So, you know, these are some of the issues we already knew that were happening. But, you know, in regards to, you know, um, people in incarceration, you know, we have the highest rate of people incarcerated who should not be there because they actually have a disability. And if they're supported with their disability needs, for most of the time, they would not be. But what we've seen is the jails are the new institutions that, you know, people with disability because there's nowhere else for them to access or, you know, be housed or or have the appropriate supports in their life. So, um, you know, in regards to, you know, most of our mobs, they want to live on country and, and have, you know, that support of, you know, their community and family and members around them. But the way the current system is, you know, most people... If they want a, a service system, you know, in regards to their package, they have to move to larger cities because, you know, the market is very dry and very thin, you know, particularly in rural and remote areas. So, you know, we need more acknowledgement of training up, you know, local people to support our own people, um, you know, to allow, you know, first of all, you know, this is a good news story. It can be, you know, training and development and employment for many people to support their own. Mm. So a lot of work, you know, still needs to be done around the agency rather than thinning it down and dumbing it down and thinking that, you know, um, all people with disability are out to get the agency. And, and, you know, this is not so, you know. But as I said many times, they just want a good life like all of us. Mm. Um, and now to a different topic. Um, the Australian government is lagging behind on their targets for administering the COVID-19 vaccine, and people with disabilities fall into the categories of Phase 1A and 1B, and then also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples over um, age 55 are also in the second priority group. So can you speak a bit about how the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is progressing for the disability community? So first and foremost, it's very slow. We, you know, we're not really seeing a great take up, which is, you know, we're very concerned. You know, I mean, first of all, we had COVID, and our, you know, our own people, our own community circled around, and and, and made sure communities were closed. Also, 
you know, um, those in the outside could not enter to protect our most vulnerable, which are the elders and those living with disability. But in regards to, you know, um, the daily information that comes from government, it creates fear in communities about, you know, and, and, and it changes every day. So, you know, the, the narrative is very uncertain for a lot of people, you know, which, you know, which jabs should they get? Are they eligible? You know, where can they get them? There's actually not enough information out. And particularly, you know, at a metropolitan region, there's not enough centres to access even if they wanted to. So, you know, we, we need to really make a concerted effort to ensure that our Aboriginal medical centres have total access to these vaccines for, you know, people to, you know, particularly those living with a disability who are the vulnerable, you know, um, cohort. So, you know, there is a slow take-up of this currently and, and we're concerned for our people with disabilities. I mean, right at the beginning of, you know, when COVID started over a year ago, it was FPDN that wrote an ethics statement about, you know, supporting First Nations people and those living with a disability because the government, you know, in their 62-page health report did not mention, you know, First Nations people living with disability and how they would be, you know, fully supported. So, again, you know, with this vaccine rollout, you know, we've got um, missed signals, misinformation, you know, and not a, you know, a high level of availability, particularly, you know, outside of metropolitan regions. Mm. And I know that the First Peoples Disability Network have also created some resources for the disability community um, about the rollout of this vaccine. Um, did you want to briefly speak about that and then just give listeners um, any other updates from FPDN? Yeah, so, um, you know, we knew that, you know, we there needed to be more information and more messaging, you know, out. And we know that, uh, you know, generally the Aboriginal population are high users of Facebook and Instagram. So, you know, we um, created our own graphics to, you know, daily put out on Instagram and Facebook about, you know, um, just basically saying, you know, have the jab, it's good for you, it's safe for you. And, and just to further, you know, give people that information. So we've got an array of graphics that we develop, you know, that we put out daily just to um, share that information and share that messaging because we're not seeing enough in, in on formal, you know, communication or media avenues around this is for you too, you know. I mean, Aboriginal people, sometimes they feel, you know, that they're outside, you know, what happens you know, nationally, you know, and, and when they're not, in, you know, named or included, they, they, they feel that this is not for them or, mm. you know, their fears ain't aligned. So, you know, we're just trying to, you know, share that information as much as we can with the community and, um, you know, and keep that up as we did during COVID about keeping safe yeah. and washing hands. And, you know, we did the same thing right through COVID and, and all our... Um, media and comms that we put out, we try to make it accessible for all people with disability. So, um, you know, that's our point of difference that we, you know, we, mm. we, we try to include community in all conversations. 
Yeah, and there's just like such beautiful visuals that I don't think the Australian government um, has been using at all. So, yeah, definitely recommend for listeners to actually just go and check out the First Peoples Disability Network website because there are such great resources for actually everybody um, to learn a bit more about the COVID-19 vaccine rollouts. Correct. Um, We just try to keep our information around the cultural way of doing business, which is storytelling. Absolutely. And um, on that note, thank you so much, June, for speaking with 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast this morning. Thank you very much and have a good day, everyone. And just then we heard from June Remar from the First People's Disability Network speaking to us about the proposed changes to the National Disability Insurance Scheme as well as the slow rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout to the disability community. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to hear um, an excerpt of a, co- of a conversation that I had with Amanda, who's an activist scholar of Aboriginal, Brinja Yuan, and settler Greek-English descent. And Amanda provides some reflections on the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And just a reminder, um, today, the 15th of April, uh, is the 30th anniversary of that report being handed down 339 recommendations. And yet we have still seen almost 500 Aboriginal people who've died in custody since the report's been handed down. So please listen up. I'm speaking with Amanda, who's an activist scholar of Aboriginal Brinja Yuan and settler Greek-English descent. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. You're welcome, Priya. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, So it is the 30th anniversary of the handing down of the report uh, of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody this week. And there was also a National Day of Action last weekend to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody um, that occurred around the country. Um, And some of the key demands from the families involved diverting funding away from police and prisons, decarceration, and the resourcing of Indigenous community-led initiatives. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak to the importance of some of these demands in light of some of the original recommendations of the Royal Commission. Thanks, Priya. So, I mean, it's hard to answer all that briefly just because, I mean, it really is a case of um, Groundhog Day, I think, because the, you know, today marks the 30-year anniversary of the tabling of the report in Parliament and there were five volumes, 339 recommendations, and it said a great deal of truth-telling and it said all those things that you said about, you know, recommendations relating to um, what families want, recommendations relating to the importance of self-determination, recommendations relating to um, all sorts of um, requirements around um, accountability for police violence, for prison violence, for carceral violence. We know all of this. Australians know all of this. It's been on the public record for 30 years. So um, I think, you know, I should add to that the of those 339 recommendations, it's very interesting to me that there are a number of recommendations 
that related in particular to the importance of responsible journalism, of ethical journalism and of, and of truth telling. And I say that in brackets um, because I want to make this clear that part of those demands for ethical journalism relate to centering the stories of families. And I think um, one thing that is very disappointing to me has been, as you say, that um, speaking of Groundhog Day, that last Saturday there was a beautiful National Day of Action. The, the wonderful elements were the elements of um, families coming together, families sharing their stories. Um, there was, um, it was, it was an exceptionally well organised rally by war, and the same rallies took place around the nation. But yet, you know, there was no reporting, almost no reporting on it on the day by the mainstream media. In fact, you know, it was really just community radio stations and um, props to um, this radio station for being one of the few to really give voice um, to um, the war um, organisers for the rally here in Nam, Melbourne. Um, in terms of truth-telling, in terms of honest, ethical truth-telling, um, that's really all there was. And when I saw the mainstream media the next day, the, one, of the, one of the hardest things was just the fact that Prince Philip was trending. There was just this idolisation of uh, colonial dinosaurs, really. Um, I don't know why the ABC, the Australian um, Broadcasting Corporation, um, n not to mention SBS and, and, and so many other, even um, alternative mainstream outlets, seem to um, really centre the death of this guy that had a pretty long life compared to black people in this country. I think today is all about families. Today is about, and I want to in particular, because um, um, today um, we're um, meeting on uh, stolen Aboriginal land and I'm here um, in Nam. And I think every Australian needs to think about that today and, and how that fits in um, and how one can live an ethical life on stolen Aboriginal land. And I'd like to acknowledge that um, and pay my sincerest and deepest of respects um, to um, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung elders past and present um, and to all Aboriginal elders past and present and in particular I'd like to pay my sincerest respects um, to um, the families um, that have been leading this fight and whose story should be centred today. In particular I'd like to pay my sincerest and deepest respects and love and solidarity to the family of Tanya Day, um, to um, all of the members of that family. Um, it's important if we're going to talk about truth in this nation, um, in this apartheid nation, called Australia. It's important that we remember today um, the story um, and the strength of Tanya Day, who herself was a sovereign advocate for bereaved families, for her own family. And I want to acknowledge the, um, the, the, the advocacy of the, the, the Day family, who, in my, my opinion, has, has done um, more um, to actually implement the recommendations than state governments, than federal government, um, than uh, the media, than any academic, than any bureaucrat, and um, in particular um, the, the fight that they've led to decriminalise public drunkenness, and that fight's not over. And in the last month, as everyone knows, there's been at least five deaths in custody 
um, and their foundation that they've set up, the Dajua Foundation. I encourage everyone today to go online um, and to have a look at their website, um, their social media, um, and to look at um, and listen to um, and think about um, the, the Day family and the work that they're doing um, and the work that War's doing and the work that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are doing around this country um, and to really um, listen, to take a time to reflect um, and to really, you know, with respect to the Dajawa Foundation, the work that they're doing is everything that we started the conversation with. You know, what did the Rikadik say? Um, it said that it's about providing support for families. Um, it's about showing love for families. Um, it's about drawing attention to state violence, to police, the violence of the police, the violence of the prison system that we know kills many people, especially black people, the, 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 um, the violence of the state, um, including other harms like income management, um, docks, the forced removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. So today I want to encourage every single person who's listening today um, to have a heart, to have some courage, um, to, to be honest um, and to read the recommendations. <laughs> yeah, I particularly would like the media to read the Royal Commission mm-hmm. recommendations, but would like bureaucrats too as well, would like academics to read them as well, would like, that doesn't matter who you are, I just think everyone ought to be just reading them today because the truth's already out there. I think it's important for people to think about what it means, you know, again, to live ethically on um, stolen Aboriginal land. So, um, you know, in um, um, Arunda country, there's um, a, a number of, you know, every, wherever you are around Australia, um, whether you're um, on Wongal country, uh, Gadigal Wongal country in Sydney, there's um, the, um, the amazing work of uh, uh, Uncle Rick Welsh, who's leading um, the, the shed in Mount Druitt and doing amazing work in terms of um, figuring out initiatives to um, minimise and uh, minimise um, contact um, and minimise the harms of the state um, and of the court, of the, co- the colonial courts um, and of the, the, the carceral controls of all of those institu- state institutions that I mentioned earlier. For those in Mianjin, in Brisbane, um, look at the fantastic work of Sisters Inside who have um, led the campaign um, hashtag Free Her, um, which has gained international attention um, for its work. Again, <laughs> it's um, not gov- we can't rely on governments today to do anything. We can't rely on the media to do anything. Um, but one thing that we, we know and we've always known, um, you know, where, where um, you can value add is um, and people that are actually doing the work, that are doing the emotional labor, labor and the intellectual labor um, is black communities, Aboriginal communities. And I um, want to, you know, that, that's the, the one message I think um, that, you know, has always been there. But there's um, think about where you are. Um, have a look at the initiatives. Um, the Tangentiary Safety um, Initiative has been um, running since the Royal Commission, since before it. Marcia Langton wrote a report called um, Too Much Sorry Business um, in the late 1980s. It was based on her research on um, Aboriginal night patrols and community safety defence initiatives. Like there's so many examples of Aboriginal self-determining community building community safety and defence and self-determination which exist in the space, which exist and have existed for um, since forever. And I think um, today it's really important for people to, to um, look to those examples and to show love and solidarity 
for those initiatives. Yeah, and to show up with their wallets, right? To make yes. sure that, yeah, yeah, to make sure that people that these are funded. And we spoke with uh, with April Day of the Dadoa Foundation the week before last, and um, we were talking about the fact that it's so important that that is not only grassroots and Aboriginal community led. Uh, but that it is community funded rather than relying on state funding, yep. which, um, you know, always yeah. comes with gaslighting, always comes with some kind of control. So everyone, um, you know, I'm going to think about how much I'm going to give. And I think everyone should really um, give a lot today and um, and send to those families. <laughs> the only thing I would say is, is not to see um you know, to, to just to, to see it that way, to see this as sovereign actors and sovereign activism. This isn't, um, there are no passive victims here um, and there's no need um, um, for white saviours here. This is, this, is, this is about families today. And that was a conversation that I had with Amanda, who's an activist scholar of Aboriginal Brinja Yuan and settler Greek English descent, who provided some reflections on the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. You're on Thursday breakfast, 3CR, 8.55 a.m., and it is just past, uh, it is just five past eight, and we're just going to play uh, the demands of the families who have lost loved ones in custody, and this is a segment that was read out by April Day, daughter of Tanya Day, on the Saturday 10th of April Melbourne rally to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. I'll introduce April. She will read out the demands of the families. These demands have been worked on by the 15 families and together we have put these together and uh, putting this to the governments. Number one, governments need to fully implement all recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody while involving and listening to our families. Two, we need an independent investigative body to inquire into all deaths in custody. Police must not investigate other police officers or prison officers. Number three, governments need to reallocate public funding away from punitive policing and expansion of prisons and invest into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led grassroots solutions. We know what works for our communities. Allow all of our people in police cells access to custody notification services without delay. And the physical restraint, abuse and torture, including spit-hooding and solitary confinement of all people in police and prisons. Number six, families deserve to know if their loved ones died in custody and that they will be heard, that there will be a timely, thorough and independent investigation and they deserve to be present at any public investigation of their loved one's death. 
This includes being provided with the means to attend all hearings. Families also deserve to know that their loved one's body is being treated in a respectful and cultural manner. Number seven, reduce imprisonment of our peoples by repealing punitive bail laws, mandatory sentencing and decriminalising public drunkenness. And to note that the Victorian government has made a commitment to the abolition of public drunkenness, but that is still 24 months away. So Aboriginal people are still at risk of dying in custody. Shame. Number eight, commit to raising the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 years. And have a minimum age of detention of 16. Our babies do not belong in prison. Number nine, we want governments to implement decarceration strategies including ending imprisonment of our mob who aren't sentenced, access to income support, ending homelessness, justice reinvestment and Aboriginal-led solutions. And number 10, we need federal funding for policing and prisons to be repurposed to meet the needs of our communities. That is a shorter version of our demands, but you can find uh, the full demands on the NATSOL's website. And that was April Day reading out the demands of families, including her own, who have lost loved ones in custody. And as April mentioned, you can find the full demands on the NATSOL's website. That's natsols.org.au. And now we are going to an interview with Steph Genetis, who is Harm Reduction Victoria's DanceWise Program Director and Board Member of Harm Reduction Australia, which runs Pill Testing Australia. And um, Steph is joining us to discuss the state of support availability for people who use drugs and or alcohol and how this has changed over COVID-19. Um, and... Um, and findings from the recent coronial inquest into the deaths of five young men between July 2016 and January 2017 after ingesting what they believe to be MDMA and or magic mushrooms. Um, now, we're about to get Steph on the phone, but just in the meantime, we'll play you a quick CSA. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Hi, Steph. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. So before we jump into the discussion, could you tell listeners a little bit about the work of Harm Reduction Victoria and Pill Testing Australia? Yeah, sure. So uh, Harm Reduction Victoria is the the state peak body for um, the health rights and human rights uh, of people who use drugs. It's a Department of Health funded service that's been around since the health rights movement in the mid-80s and uh, initially was responding to the HIV uh, AIDS epidemic and has come to deliver a range of services and um, do advocacy around a range of health issues that impact people who use drugs in Victoria. Uh, and then Pill Testing Australia is uh, started as a consortium of stakeholders from around Australia. Um, it's run by Harm Reduction Australia, which is a national advocacy organisation, and um, delivered the two pill testing trials that were in 2018 and 19 in ACT. Yeah, fantastic, and really important work done uh, by both organisations. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about two main things today. So firstly, just a little bit of an overview of the state of support availability for people who use drugs and or alcohol and how this has kind of changed over um, over the COVID-19 pandemic and then later about the recent coronial inquest findings recommending drug testing in Victoria or uh, pill testing in Victoria. So uh, we spoke with a member of Harm Reduction Victoria around this time last year about challenges facing the drug using community in Victoria and I was wondering, um, how has the situation sort of changed since then with the impacts of COVID in terms of people's needs and servicing requirements? Okay, so with Harm Reduction Victoria, we're focusing mostly on people who are currently using drugs and providing them with um, support. Um, that could be referrals into alcohol and other drug treatment services, or more often it's really practical things like um, sterile injecting equipment and education about reducing their risks as they continue to use. Um, if someone was wanting to access treatment, they would probably need to um, like start by calling something like uh, a number like direct line um, and then the peak body in Victoria for alcohol and other drug treatment services is uh, VADA. Um, if people were wanting to get some insights about um, different treatment services in Victoria, there was the SBS um, Rethink Addiction campaign that started last year, and that was the series that showed the kinds of treatment services that people um, might be able to access. Um, in general, though, alcohol and other drug treatment historically throughout COVID and hopefully not moving into the future, but still that is the status quo, um, is, is underfunded, um, quite significantly underfunded. But it does seem like the, the government has shown some commitment to recognising that alcohol and other drug use is a or can be a health issue for some people who use and um, that support health-based support is more effective than putting people in prison yeah absolutely and um, have you seen the sort of like nature of types of supports that people are asking for and the availability kind of shifting recently uh, in terms of um, like COVID-19 related access issues? Because I've noticed um, there was an article recently, I think in The Age, that was talking about um, a blowout to wait times um, since the Christmas period. Okay, so 
There has, there has been like a range of different kinds of trends, like drug use patterns have been impacted by um, COVID restrictions. Um, one thing that like I'm conscious of is um, people's reduced tolerance, and in particular, um, because of all the travel restrictions, the any illicit drug markets um, have been impacted, which means the 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 quality of the supply has been impacted. So there's a risk there, um, and I, and so yeah, there there have been a range of different trends, but it's not it's not clear. And I think this is something that will be researched on an ongoing basis. The the data that's available pre-COVID does show that the number of drug-induced deaths um, quite steadily increased in, in the years prior um, to COVID and, and uh, the research of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, um, I believe they're putting out some information today on, on that topic, but uh, it's almost too soon to say uh, what the impacts um, of illicit drug use were, um, particularly because people who use drugs often are not coming forward and seeking services because of the fear of criminalization. So there might be more presentations to emergency departments. Um, I, I'm just speculating. I, th I think that there's been mm -hmm. a, a range of increases. Some things have increased, some things have decreased, um, and, and it will have to be monitored on an ongoing basis. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have to, we'll, we'll keep on top of this issue over time and we'll be very interested to see some of the research that comes out about it. Um, so now turning to the coronial inquest, um, there was um, a recent coronial inquest into the deaths of five men, tragically, who died in separate incidents uh, between 2016 and 2017 after ingesting what they believed to be MDMA and or magic mushrooms, but it contained a dangerous combination of some new psychoactive substances. So could you tell us a little bit about the inquest and harm reduction Victoria's submission to that inquest, some of the key concerns. Yeah, sure. So um, people may, be, may recall the events on the weekend of 15, 16 January uh, where there was 20 um, hospitalisations from around the St Kilda Paran um, nightclub district and that resulted in three of the five deaths. Uh, and so with the coroner's findings showing that there was uh, a couple of substances that were novel substances involved in um, all five of the deaths, um, the individual investigations became an inquest. And so they've been grouped together, but there are five separate reports that have been um, released last week. And they, they, they replicate the exact same um, findings and recommendations. So the drugs involved were... Um, Novel psychoactive substances, one 25 mbomi, which is kind of like a psychedelic and a stimulant, but it's more high risk than um, MDMA. And 4FA is kind of like a, a type of amphetamine. And it, it's um, both of these substances, they just have different risk profiles to MDMA. And one of the one of the issues that came out um, of the of the inquest is that. 25 mbom, when you um, snort it or inject it, there's more risk. And all of the, the people who had died, um, there was some indication that they had um, snorted it. And so that had a different effect um, on them. Um, yeah, and so at the, at the time, um, 
following the, the weekend in particular of January 2017, there was a, a, a lot of advocacy work calling for drug checking um, services, and, and that's continued, um, and it will continue. Uh, it's been on the agenda for many years. Um, it's just great to see it being supported by uh, such a reputable government organisation as um, the, the coroner's court. Um, but yeah, with the with the findings that the uh, coroner put out, they were suggesting that the Department of Health implement drug checking services as a matter of urgency. Because uh, if you think of what I was mentioning before about we don't exactly know what's happening with the drug market, um, but we do know that the the market has been impacted by the travel restrictions um, due to due to COVID, and we are seeing um, a lot more. Um, just unpredictable things happening. So it, someone might be getting something that's reasonably benign, but they also might be get, getting something that's like a, a novel substance because supply of a particular um, illegal drug that's in demand might have depleted. Like, um, and and uh, another recommendation of the coroner is to implement an early warning uh, network. So that is, you know... Um, tracking the data and putting out public health warnings or tailored warnings to different health professionals. The exact nature of the system um, is still left um, up for design, but um, the, it, the coroner was quite clear that this is something that needs to be implemented as a matter of urgency. Yeah, definitely. And, and approaching this as something that is around sort of a health and harm reduction approach rather than like a carceral um, approach to uh, yeah to, to, to people who, who use drugs. Because, um, yeah, I was wondering if you could touch on sort of state and policing responses to, to these kinds of recommendations as well, either right now or historically, and what you sort of anticipate around that. Uh, so I'm quite keen to see how, um, to see the response to the, the coroner. Um, the government generally has about three months um, to respond. Uh, like, I mean, I'm, why not be optimistic? Uh, you know, uh, all the evidence is there. All the submissions were reasonably consistent um, calling for this health service. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think that there's a few challenges like just kind of fundamentally when you're trying to offer a health service for people um, engaging in criminalized behavior and still having the the threat of being um, criminalized and potentially incarcerated hanging over someone's head. So I think there are a few things that do need to change, possibly repealing um, the offenses of um, drug use or possession of reasonably small amounts, and that's things like um, there's, there's various jurisdictions around the world that we can point to that are, uh, have been doing such reforms, um, one of the earliest being um, Portugal. And in Victoria, there was a, a drug law reform inquiry uh, that was really comprehensive that released a report in 2000, around 2017 or 18, and it made... Um, various recommendations, about 50 different recommendations um, that was calling for um, changes like considering the, the Portuguese model. Um, yeah, like it's a really big issue. It's, it, it, it cuts across a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of points to do with uh, whether or not we should be, what, 
bothering with punishing people at all um, or whether we should be just focusing on ensuring that people have the education and support they need. Um, the evidence from, our, from places that have shifted towards a health focus approach do indicate that drug use doesn't go up and um, the, the health outcomes are much better. Australia is capable of implementing such a system. We, we have a great health system to begin with. We've got a lot of experts in this field. Uh, we just need to make sure that the, the policy framework doesn't keep people's hands tied. Yeah, and um, and I, I just noted that um, very recently, I think yesterday potentially, New Zealand has made uh, pill testing mandatory um, or has yeah, has basically um, announced a system of pill testing. So definitely important to be hopeful about this and keep keep pushing um, for these kinds of changes. Um, now, where can people find out a bit more about Harm Reduction Victoria and the work of Pill Testing Australia? Yeah, so um, Harm Reduction Victoria, uh, the website is hrvic.org.au. Um, Pill Testing Australia um, is run through Harm Reduction Australia. Um, there's a range of other um, alcohol and other drug services as well as alcohol and other drug um, or harm reduction advocacy organisations. Uh, so to name a few, for anyone um, like studying, there's groups like Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Um, I mentioned before that there's um, VADA is the peak body for alcohol and other drug treatment services. There is the Loop Australia, which is another um, advocacy organisation that advocates for poo testing or drug checking. Um, yeah, and and there's services like that. Um, the ADF, which is a number of resources. Uh, there is a there is a lot of uh, information out there. I mean, all the sources I've just listed obviously um, require people to have some level of um, internet access. Mm. So if that's a barrier for people, like our office is um, in North uh, sorry North Melbourne, um, we're near the vet markets there. We do operate a drop-in service. So if people needed, say, needle and syringe program um, equipment, um, we do offer an exchange there. Um, and awesome. if people wanted to pick up, like, hard copies of our resources, that's available too. Uh, yeah, and if you do to like, just be able to call a phone number, um, you can always call direct line, but that's more for, like, a referral if you wanted to access yeah. uh, sort of treatment. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat with us, Steph. Um, I really appreciate that and encourage people to check out the resources. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. And that was Steph Gennetti from Harm Reduction Victoria's DanceWise program and board member of Harm Reduction Australia, which runs Pill Testing Australia, who spoke to us about the state of support availability for people who use drugs and or alcohol, how this has changed over COVID, and some findings from the recent coronial inquest into the deaths of five young men between July 2016 and January 2017 after ingesting um some substances that were novel psychoactive substances that they weren't aware of, which tragically led to their deaths. Now, I just uh, wanted to remind people that it is today the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and there are a couple of events that we really encourage people to tune into. So firstly, at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today, there is a Stop Black Deaths in Custody webinar that is being run by Natsals, and you can find information on natsals.org.au or on their social media. That's at N-A-T-S-I-L-S, and that is involving 
including Senator uh, Pat Dodson, um, Senator Lydia Thorpe and Troy Brady and Nyoka and Colin Chatfield. Um, there's also an event that is running um, later today at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is a webinar presented by Dr. Chelsea Watergo uh, called 30 Years Still No Justice. And Chelsea will be speaking with Auntie Jenny Monroe, uh, Jungaji Brady, Auntie Shirley Lomas, Kaya Patton, Susan Dixon, Michaela Reynolds, Martin Hodgson and Jason Fong. And uh, this is hosted by Fist Movement, War Revolt, and Gamilaray Next Generation. And then there is also a Natsals event running next Monday, reflecting on the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission um, to join families whose loved ones have died in custody. And that is a webinar that will be on Monday, the 19th of April at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And once again, you can find that at the Natsals website. And um, that previous um 30 Years Still No Justice 3 p.m. event you can find via looking up Gamilaray, G-A-M-I-L-A-R-A-A-Y, Next Generation on Instagram. And uh, I reckon that's all we've got time for in today's show. Um, Shall we do a very quick rundown of yeah. what we spoke about? Sounds great, Priya. Um, so first up, we heard Maruki Onis, host of the Black Block, speaking to Wurundjeri woman Sue Ann Hunter about the Europe Justice Commission, a truth-telling process expected to begin in July 2021. And um, we heard that from an episode on the Black Block that was aired on the 12th of April. Um, and then we heard from June Rima, Deputy CEO of the First People's Disability Network, uh, we spoke to Amanda uh, about the 30th anniversary, and we spoke to Steph Janetti's about uh, from Harm Reduction Victoria and Pill Testing Australia. Thanks, everyone. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.